Hi, friends, and welcome to the Robcast. It's a, a Saturday night, and I'm in Seattle. I'm backstage at the Neptune, and I'm about to go out and do the Introduction to Joy tour. Um, so that's where we're coming from, and that's what we're doing. Um, and now in a second here, I'm going to play you the interview I did earlier this week with Reverend Lydia, because... Oh, Reverend Lydia is your new sister from a different mister. I'm telling you, um, such an inspiring spiritual leader. Um, but before we get to me asking Reverend Lydia all the questions I wanted to ask her, um, new tour dates. The tour uh, is now set through the end of the year. And so uh, UK tour, I'm headed there for Introduction to Joy. And we've just added a second London show. So uh, those of you in West London who were like, could you do something on the west side of London? Yes, I'll be doing uh, Bush Hall Theatre, which is this intimate theater in Shepherd's Bush on Wednesday the 14th of August. Um, it's a small venue. And uh, then I'll also be doing Earth in London as well. But um, we just added the second night of London that will start the UK tour. and Well, actually, Bristol will start it. Um, then London, then Manchester, and then I'm doing three nights at the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland. And then uh, the final leg of the Introduction to Joy tour, um, tickets are going up for Chicago, Champaign, Illinois, Indianapolis, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston... Nashville, Atlanta, Santa Cruz, Sacramento, and then I'm going to finish the Introduction to Joy Tour in my hometown of Los Angeles, and I'll be at the Lodge Room. So uh, all you Texas friends, all Chicago friends, Indiana friends, I've never been to Champaign, um, Dallas, San Antonio, oh, Nashville, Atlanta, obviously. So that's it, and then the tour will be done. So that's the final leg, and obviously going around talking about joy this year has been incredible. Um, now, I'm gonna go out and do the show, and you are going to get to meet Reverend Lydia. Reverend Lydia is in the back house. This is your first time here, correct? It is my <laughs> first time here. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I'm so glad um, you could come over. Thank you. I have so many questions. So uh, this is Reverend Lydia Sohn, S-O-H-N, um, a certified registered minister. Um, you're a, a, like a spiritual leader, a pastor in a church. That's right. Minister, reverend. I like Reverend Lydia, though. Yeah. It's kind of badass. Yeah, Reverend Lydia. People call me Pastor Lydia. Okay. I, I have a bunch of things I want to uh, ask you about, but I first, I stumbled across the writing you did about interviewing people mm -hmm. in their 80s and 90s? Uh, just 90s. People in their 90s. Where did the idea come from? So as a United Methodist minister, uh, and that's a mainline denomination, so the mainline denomination currently has an aging population in a way that's really unique right now because the height of the mainline denomination, I would say, was in the 1950s and 60s after World War II during the suburban expansion. So it's like a cultural phenomenon. It's a whole cultural phenomenon. It's like a religious, cultural, sociological, economic, yes. post-war phenomenon. Yes. 
And so that Protestant liberal church is this gigantic institution that took shape um, and it was at its height after World War II. And that's the denomination I just happened to join because I was, I fell into it, I guess you could say, and fell in love with the theology of the United Methodist Church. Although right now we're having some debates about the LGBTQIA issue, which is going to probably uh, be an interesting thing for our future. But I was serving a church with people who were decades older than me. This was back in 2015, right after I was commissioned and sent to my very first church. So you're how old? So right now I'm 35. So you're late 20s uh, early, at that point. Early 30s. Early 30s. Yes. And your job is to go be a spiritual leader for people like in their 80s and 90s. That's right, yes. Was that intimidating? Older than me. It was very intimidating. And I came into it thinking, and there also, it was predominantly white congregation, the, the congregation that I was sent to in Arcadia. And I came into it thinking that I wouldn't be able to connect with any of these folks that were racially and culturally so different from me. And whether or not I knew it, I had these preconceptions about older, the elderly. And I would, I would say I, I, would had, I had two preconceptions, main preconceptions. The first is that they become more sage-like over time, kind of transcending desires and yearnings and... Uh, sort of detached, floating above it all. Yes. Floating above it all is a great way to say it. Or that they became a little bit... Um, jaded about life. And it turns out neither of those preconceptions happened to be correct as I was inter interacting with these people who were double my age constantly. And I think the moment that I, I had this aha moment of how wrong that preconception was, was when I was ministering to a woman who was in her 80s, so not in her 90s, um, in her 80s, weeping because she had fallen in love with a man who wasn't her husband. She was a widow and who couldn't return her affections. 80-something-year-old woman. Unrequited love in her 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing with me like a woman in her teenage years. And it blew And what all did of she my... want you... She just wanted someone to listen? She wanted you to help her... Figure Deal this with her out. broken heart. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> what to do and um, confide in me in a way that she probably wasn't able to confide in others. Yeah. And that's when I first started thinking that my assumptions about the elderly was totally different. So that's when the kernel of the idea sprouted. Yep. And then I started... I decided to do a research project where I would interview the eldest people in my congregation in their 90s who had made it to their 90s, line them up, uh, meet with them one-on-one -on -one to talk about, well, what then is it like to be in your 90s? Like, do you still crave sex? Do you have hopes and dreams for your life knowing that there isn't much left? And when you look back, what were the best moments of your life? And By the way, research project... You called a research project, uh -huh. but it wasn't any like official thing. No, it wasn't. You just cooked up out of your own curiosity. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I love it. To everybody listening, just name your curiosity. Just give your curiosity a formal, proper name. 
Yes. And then just go do it. Right. And looking <laughs> back, it was very, it was very, it was curiosity, but it was also selfishly driven that underneath it all, I had a supreme fear of getting older. Ah, uh, yeah. Because I right. thought that it would be because I would lose all this vibrancy and vitality and, and thirst for life. Yeah. And somehow I thought maybe talking to these elderly folks in the most intimate of ways would help me to peer into the window of my future life and then maybe make my fear subside or have some sort of control over yeah. what was coming. So you would just say to them, can I meet with you and ask you questions? Yes. I would say to them, I'm working on a writing project where I want to interview the oldest people I know. And I'm wondering if you'd be able to, you'd be willing to meet with me and everything that you share with me, I won't give out your name or your identity. And every single person was so honored to meet with me because so rarely do people ask them them questions about what they think, right? As well, especially in a, in the Western world in America, as you get older, you become more and more invisible and mm-hmm. I remember, it, which is very different from Asian cultures. Um, so I remember one woman in her 90s that I was interviewing, she said, I wish my granddaughter asked me the same questions that you're asking me now because I want to tell her these things. Um, Fascinating. So so um, what patterns emerged? What surprised you? What? Yeah. What are the, what are the, what were the big things that happened? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things, you know, are not that surprising. So... Yes, of course, they still crave sex, but more so intimacy. Sex becomes more tiresome, uh, you know. As but you ninety-year-olds were like, "Yes, I still want yes, to have sex." Yes, right. And that was like, was that something you brought up in the questions, or something they wanted no, you to I know? No, I asked them. I asked yeah. them. So let, let's talk about your sex life now. You know, do you have one? Do you? And across the board, yes. Uh, I would say that the presence of the sex life was mixed. Mm-hmm. But the desire for the sex life was mostly present. Oh, fascinating. In the 90s. Mm-hmm. Th- that's fascinating. Yes. Um, but <laughs> it gets trickier because you're more tired. Yeah. And But I would say that the greater longing is for deep intimacy that's just as strong as it was during the height of their youth. So a 90-year-old across the board... Like a, a a legit sample size talks about wanting like a partner mm-hmm. doesn't want to be lonely wants somebody to walk with yes like a twenty one year old yes absolutely that never dies no matter how old we get and longings don't really go away either so one of the ninety year olds still uh, one of the things on her bucket list was finishing up her book I mean who knows if it'll sell or it'll become popular I mean she's just doing it purely. Because she wants to. Yeah. And so these yearnings and hopes for their future are still very much alive. But I would say that the thing that I was most surprised by, I, I started the research project, my, my research project, as I shared with you, because I wanted to pacify this great fear that I had of getting older. But what the conversations made me realize was to appreciate my life right now. Because when I asked them, what their regrets were or the happiest times of their life, it all revolved around this time that I'm in right now where I am working full time, raising small children and trying to balance everything. A time that I consider to be the most stressful time of my life is basically the time that they consider to be the happiest time of their life. Oh, really? What, late 20s, 
30s, the time when it's the most intense and you have the most sort of responsibility and they all reference that period. Yes. When their, spou- when their spouses were still alive and the children were at home and they were juggling these priorities and responsibilities. This phase of my life that I constantly fantasize about getting out Absolutely. Of. The thing that everybody said, because yes. I was just, when you came in, you were like, we have a baby on the way and I have a three-year-old and I was like, well, that, that's like the most difficult period. It's and then crazy. it passes through. That's the exact period that everybody's like, we'll, we'll just get through this. Yes. And then is the period in the 90s people look back on. Yes. And say that was the real, that was the stuff. Right. And that, that is something I was not expecting. Mm-hmm. I was expecting something more along the lines of my best time was 20 um, something just before I got married. Yeah. Or 62, right after my kids left the nest. Kids left home. There was, there was more resources. There was less drain on the resources. We had free time. We could try, et cetera. Yeah. But no. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that was the biggest surprise, I guess, of my, uh, from my conversations. And it gave me a whole new perspective on this season of my life. And whenever I find myself fantasizing about the future or my child being off to college, I think, what will I miss about this moment right Mm -hmm. here? And maybe preaching the best sermon in the world isn't the most important thing did so as a spiritual leader of people in their 80s and 90s how did hearing all of these by the way were there any moments when the person said something you were like i cannot believe they just said that are there any moments to stand out that were like shocking or strange or did not see that coming <laughs> let me think about that Okay, I'll keep going. How did, (laughs) we'll come back to that. How did it affect how you then were a spiritual leader to people who are in their 80s and 90s? Well, it definitely made me connect more with them and realize that, oh, we're all the same inside. That we still laugh like crazy and long to have these deep relationships and find meaning in life. Yeah. And the bridge that I thought was so vast became infinitely smaller and now I don't really see that that cultural gap anymore as I minister to these people who are double and triple my age. Really? Yeah. You don't have any you're not intimidated anymore. No, not at all. And really? I don't I and I also don't get um I don't get insecure about whether my message will speak to them because I know that it, it can. Because we're all struggling and we will all continue to struggle with the same questions of how do I love better? How do I become closer with this person? How do I forgive yeah. this person? Who am I? What am I doing here? Yeah. All the big stuff. Yeah, that never go away. There are these universal human desires and longings that cut across everything. Yes. Fascinating. Okay. Now, uh, remember when you, when you first contacted me and you talked about being a Korean-American? Mm-hmm. Um, did you grow up in a, was it a, uh, culturally when you grew up, was your family, we are Koreans in America, we are Korean, how did, how did you see America, how did you see being Korean American, what, is that, what did that mean growing up? Yeah, so we immigrated when I was three years old, so I was really young, but I grew up in a predominantly Korean speaking household. Why did you, your parents came to America? Mm-hmm. They grew up in South Korea. Yes, they did. And what made them come to America? Uh, One of the two top reasons 
is education. Yep. And so my dad wanted to pursue a higher education here in America. And that's the visa that we got, the education visa. And what did he study? He studied architecture and then he transferred to theology. Hence ah, two, my of, love two of, of my great loves. Yes. Architecture and theology. Really? I would have lots of questions for that man. Oh, yeah. Because I think architecture is theological. Absolutely. Yeah. Spaces like shape us. That's right. Okay, so you they came and where did they move? Where did you settle? So we settled in first in the Orange County area yep. and then in the Inland Empire, so uh, slash LA County. So at the very easternmost edge yeah. of LA County in Claremont, California. And they spoke Korean? Yes. And they have slowly become bilingual over the decades. <laughs> they made it in America speaking just Korean. Well, it was hard. And they've definitely taken classes over the years and acculturated to the point where their English is definitely passable. And now, as an adult, I rarely speak Korean with them. We all speak to one another in yeah. English or what we say, Konglish, so a little bit of both. <laughs> Konglish. So what was, so did you go to English-speaking schools? I did. I did. All throughout my life. And most of the time, I was the only Korean-American in my class or Asian-American in my class. That changed um, in high school as there, there were more immigrants in my high school, but always the minority and trying to figure out what my, my identity meant. And, of course, when I was younger, I saw it as a huge detriment. And now I see it as a huge blessing. So when you're younger, you just wanted to be, just fit in as a regular American course, kid. Of course, yeah. How did that feeling of, like a feeling of alienation, strangeness, isolation, what was it? Yeah, it was, um, it was very simple. Like, why can't we just have regular Thanksgiving meals like I see on TV in my friends' houses? To, um to why is it that these kids are understanding the teacher's jokes in a way that I don't, you know, because idioms and jokes are very culturally entrenched. Yes. And so even as I was becoming fluent in the language, like so much faster than my parents, because I came at such a young age, there were still these cultural things that I didn't understand about American language. And I would feel very shy about speaking up in class or feeling like I had anything to contribute. And of course, as I got older, this all became an asset of being able to uh, gracefully traverse between cultural lines and then noticing when people were left out of the conversation and who wasn't speaking and who was speaking. And then, of course, claiming my own unique voice and believing that I did have something interesting to say, even if I was from a different cultural background. Oh, yeah. Okay. I have a thousand questions on that alone. Yeah. But I got to back up. When you would say to your parents, like, why can't we have Thanksgiving? Right. I assume if your parents are like, Lydia. Right. You do not understand the giant leap we just made. Uh-huh. I mean, was that, were they understanding? Were they defensive? Uh, I think Because if they... you've just left and yeah. gone across the world for a better life. Right. And your kid is like. Complaining. But then you also, I assume, also understand what situation you've just put your kid in. Right. Yeah, there was a little bit of, well, one, Korean food is so much healthier, so stop complaining. <laughs> Korean food is so much healthier? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So stop complaining. 
But the second, the, the other part was that they did want me to fit in. They did want me to enjoy the gifts of American tradition. Yeah. And so we did try, but it would be like mashed potatoes from a box. Sure. And then kimchi was always at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> and I would like train my parents on American culture. Like, you know, there's this thing called the tooth fairy. And kids would put their tooth under their pillow and then we'd make a, a bunch of money from it. So mom and dad, can and you your just parents start? were like, that's just dumb. <laughs> no, they did it. <laughs> oh, right. But I tried to take advantage of them, like, you know, $100 per tooth. But there's like a normal rate. Okay, got it. <laughs> and kimchi and mashed potatoes at is at the dinner an... table. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You um. So then, how? Because it's very interesting to me that you grew up like not speaking up, and now you speak in public. I do. So yeah. How does how were you raised in a in a home that was like anything's possible, like an empowering? You're a Korean American woman. Yeah. And you can do anything. Yeah, I would say that the message that I received was very, very mixed. So as immigrants, immigrants in general have a let's, let's break glass ceilings mentality. That's the whole reason why we come here, because we have a dream of transcending where we're from. And so our, my family does have a big dreamer mentality of you. What do you want to be? You can be anything you want. And at the same time, we're restricted by the constraints of Korean culture, particularly for women to be docile, submissive, quiet. I Was never that your mom? saw. Um, well, just in, in the Korean churches that I grew up in the Korean communities that I was around. Mm -hmm. This was modeled for me. I very rarely actually I never met a Korean American, a Korean female minister until I was in my teenage years and I went to the Methodist church. But growing up in the evangelical Korean church, the, the, all of the pastors and the ministers were men. Was your mom that quiet, docile? Did she play that role? She did in society, but not in the house. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Once you were sort of behind closed doors in your own private space, then she was yeah ruled the place. Right. Yeah. Lots of opinions. So you grew up, when you saw an empowered woman... Mm-hmm just speaking up did mm -hmm. that just blow your mind yes absolutely and it was a little frightening for me to question this korean norm of what a woman should be like of speaking up um sometimes disagreeing which is a big no-no in korean culture especially disagreeing with superiors because like the hierarchy, the authority structures are all very rigid, respectful, very rigid. Yeah, yeah. And when then, when ahead. did you? How old were you when you had like wait a second? This system, this hierarchy, I don't buy it. Did you have like a aha a turning yes, point? Yeah. Well, I think just being raised in the the American education system. Mm -hmm did empower me to mm -hmm. speak up and experimenting with my voice and putting it out there. And then I went to a women's college. I went to Scripps College at the Claremont Colleges, which is all about feminist education. So that was a huge empowering. <laughs> you, went, you went from a, a Korean church rigid hierarchy to a feminist universe, uh, a strong feminist 
Liberal Arts College. Liberal Arts College. Yeah. Was that completely disorienting, or was that like coming home, or was that like, oh, this is what I, how, what was that like? It was, uh, let's blend all of this together into who I am. Oh, what a good answer. Yeah. There were very few Asian Americans at the Claremont Colleges, uh, as opposed to, you know, UC, the UC school system or mm-hmm. the university school system in California. So it was, it was a, it was, I couldn't avoid the dominant academic ideology. If I had gone to a bigger university, perhaps I could have and stayed within my little enclave of Asian American culture, but I couldn't do that at Scripps College. And I had to integrate myself in a way that was, and in, in, a, in a way that was really good for me, I think. Okay, this is fascinating to me. There is a Reverend Lydia pathway. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe wouldn't have ended up Reverend Lydia. There is a pathway you could have taken to stay firmly within Korean American culture. Mm-hmm. And something within you, see this stuff is always to me, it's so universal and, inter- and mysterious. Something within you wanted more mm-hmm. or couldn't fit. Something was more expanding. How, how would, uh, this is my yeah. observation, how would you say that? Well, how would you yeah. describe that? What is it about you that you went, no, I'll do this thing that not a lot of people are doing? I think that I think that there was an external affirmation of um, the unique skills that I brought that were affirmed by other people and also myself. So I think that when people are utilizing what they're meant to do, their skills or their gifts, there's a great alignment and feeling more alive. Yeah. And so even though I never grew up seeing female ministers, whenever I would speak up in small groups or church settings or in my religious studies classes, it there was always an external affirmation of the things that I was saying, but also an internal feeling of this feels really right for me. And I know that while I haven't met any female ministers, that I have to pursue this because this feels really right for me and empowering for me. So something something with outside of you went, hey, more from her, please. Yeah, yeah. And something within you went, hey. This feels good. This is life. Right. I need to pursue this. Um, what did your parents think coming from the world they came from mm-hmm. for you to be in this environment where you are being, you are swimming in ideas way beyond mm-hmm. what they would have been around? Right. A little scared mm-hmm. and very proud. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Scared and proud. Yeah. And it helped my dad had a theological education too at the Claremont School of Theology, which is yeah. known for being incredibly progressive and liberal. So he was, all, he was already pushing the boundaries of Korean American theology. Yeah, I got and, it. And really allowing that to be encouraged in our household. Yeah, yeah. And then out of that, you go to Yale. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. I got. A, I got. I was one of the three who got it. a full ride to Yale Divinity School. One of the three in the incoming class. Be, and they, ple- um, what had you done? Yeah. That Yale was like you. Well, well, 
everything's covered. Come yeah, join us. I don't know. I don't know because oh, people who get that always say that. Right. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Right. Because when I went there, I'm like, oh, I'm not as smart as these people around me. You know, like they say that people who go to Yale were everybody has a an inferiority complex. Um, a complex of I don't belong here. They made the mistake with me. So that definitely didn't go away when I went there. And again, continuing to be one of the few Asian American women in the school. Um, but feeling like that's exactly where I was supposed to be. You just knew it. Mm-hmm. That's that. And um, how... And from the, at that point, somewhere in there, you were like, "I'm going to be a, I'm going to be Reverend Lydia." Yeah, it was a it was a very difficult journey for me to say yes to this calling that had been knocking at my door for a very long time because of the cultural resistance to it, because the, there were very few models for me, because I didn't really quite feel at home in the Korean American Evangelical Church, but I also didn't feel at home yeah. within the progressive mainline denomination. So I resisted it with all my heart. And then I graduated Yale Divinity School thinking I was going to go to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Because I just didn't want to face dealing with all of this, these inconsistencies and not really having a home and feeling home at any, in any religious context. See, now you're talking to everybody. Yeah. That feeling like I don't belong there. Right. I don't belong there. Yeah. They're not going to have me. I don't want to go over there. Yeah. That that sounds familiar to you, especially, I bet. So, yeah. well, and at some point, there's some, it sounds like there's some point at which all of the angst about, I don't know where I fit, just becomes, then um, that's what I, then I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. You turned into it instead of away from it. Yeah. Well, How I long didn't... was the med school nonsense? <laughs> oh, just for like a year. <laughs> and that was literally an idea to avoid doing what I knew I was supposed to double, do. Doubling down on the Reverend Lydia path mm-hmm. was I'll just go to med school. That's right. And I will fulfill the stereotypical Asian American identity of becoming a doctor <laughs> just to avoid this. Oh, see, that's interesting. Because there's like a tribal familiarity. Oh, yeah. Uh, and acceptance. If you do this, everybody gets it. Mm-hmm. You'll be handsomely rewarded. Mm-hmm. The path will be clear. Yep. No more angst. Yep. Except for the internal sense that you didn't do the thing. That That's right. That's right. And I'll have a sense of belonging in a way that I won't and I don't have as a minister in a mainline congregation. You'll all be- you'd belong externally. Right. And yet you would have sacrificed something about... What I was the soul, the heart, spirit, identity, who you actually are. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That is the thing, isn't it? Yeah. That is the thing. Yeah. So you just decide to go farther into this. Yeah, I mean, it's unavoidable, I think. You know, when you're connected to spirit and you just take one step in front mm-hmm. of the other, mm-hmm. that certain doors close and other doors keep opening up. And so that's how I would describe my journey into ordination is that no matter how resistant I was, certain doors kept closing and certain doors would keep opening up for me and showing me the path to what I was supposed to be doing. And even though I would say that there are many moments where I still feel like this isn't 
this doesn't feel completely comfortable for sure. me. Sure. I feel like it's exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I do find avenues where I get to find my tribe and experiment outside of the boundaries with certain theological ideas or theological expressions that probably wouldn't be appropriate in a traditional liturgical worship setting. Yeah. So I do find ways to experiment. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm fascinated that as the daughter of immigrants who immigrated yourself, essentially, mm-hmm. um, this is immigration obviously right now, when you see the images of the border and you hear the president and you, you watch, is this for you, does it strike home in any unique way for you, this subject? Mm-hmm. Or um, is it like, well, that's a, sort of a different thing than what you went through? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or, or even in the congregation that you lead. Right. Um, how do you see all this? Yeah, that's a really insightful question, especially because San Diego is so close to the border. Yes. In a way that wasn't for me when I was living in Pastina, right. or Arcadia area. Um, so I will say that a lot of it comes down to pure racism in the sense that, so America is okay with certain kinds of immigrants, right? Oh, certain immigrants are okay if you're from a certain class if you're going to pursue an education and behave like us, but not those immigrants that are going to take our jobs or, you know, bring gangs across the border, right? These certain stereotypes of the certain kind of immigrant is a good immigrant and there are certain kind of immigrants that are bad immigrants. The truth of the matter is that kind of mentality is awful for all immigrants in general <laughs> yes. because for the Eastern Asian immigrant that's allowed to come into this country under the auspices that will align with American cultural values and be your model minority kind of restricts us from stepping into our our most authentic empowered selves and even straying from this expectation that we'll be straight A high performing doctors in America because some of us don't want to be that. And Oh, that's interesting. So the model minority, you you coming in the door through the model minority, the model minority yeah. has its own uh, shackles to it. Yes, absolutely. So for someone like you who's like, I'm not coming here to be a doctor. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. Um, and then, and then the other, and then the other sort of, sort of blatant. These people are are going to come and ruin our country, and mm-hmm. we need to take our country back. Yeah. How um, how do you uh, interact with? the issue where you are in San Diego? Well, fortunately, our church is really progressive. And so we take a strong stand on um, the right, humane treatment of all immigrants um, who have already crossed the border and are detainees or about to cross the border. And I mean, it's very theological. I just, um, it's hard for me as a progressive minister to see how we can't be for immigrants when we see the Old Testament and the dictates and the mandates of certain treatment to foreigners yes. in our country because we once were also foreigners. So yeah. it it's intellectually, theologically difficult for me to be a Christian and, and own my faith and not have a certain stance on the humane treatment of all people, no yeah. matter their nationality or where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's so interesting to me how how this is so for so many it's a new idea that mm-hmm. the in the bible like it's like one of the most basic things yes is how you treat the, the alien alien the stranger the immigrant the refugee the one who wanders into your midst mm-hmm. is all about remembering your own story that's right because you were once that's right this person yeah. finding yourself in this person mm-hmm. and it's actually how you keep your own story alive that's like, right uh, so basic. Mm-hmm. Oh, my word. Okay, so um, I have more questions. I'm going to keep going. Sure. So you now have these, because I, I felt like you were touching on it earlier. You've created these workbooks to help people figure out who they are and what they're doing here, essentially. Yes, how I do have. you, what length, how do you phrase it? So I created these workbooks that have different topics like how to discover what you want to do because I myself have struggled so much with that question mm-hmm. and following my path to finding joy in your life to cultivating healthy relationships and mending broken ones. And the reason the idea came because I was starting to get a lot of requests for pastoral care, not just in my congregation, but outside of my congregation as my writing started circulating in a way that I couldn't address every single person. I'm sure you're very familiar with this demand. Absolutely. Yeah. How do I help these people when I have a limited amount of time and resources? And I can't even help all the people at my church who want to meet with me one-on-one. And so I created a set of resources that have particularly helped me and my healing and my growth. So I'm unique in that therapy has never worked for me. And I'm not knocking therapy because I know that it has worked for a lot of people And I have met with very gifted therapists who were able to assist me with certain things that I was working through. But as an Asian American, I would say that I need a lot of introverted, processing, reflective time to work work through struggles and challenges in my life. And so that's something Asian American. That's something Asian American. I think that's a cultural. uh, How do you say it? Trait. Yeah, I would say more so. I mean, I think it's common among all introverts that we need a lot of processing time mm-hmm. to figure out if what we're hearing and reading applies to us. And 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 I think that that's very much the case for Asian Americans who are taught to be subscribing to social norms very easily and agreeing with supervisors and experts really easily. And so for most of my youth, for most of my youth, I suppressed this inner voice because of these cultural expectations of mine. So if a pastor told me to do something, I would do it because that was obviously the correct thing. If a a psychological expert told me that I needed to do this in order to have a better life, then I took it on. But eventually there were certain things that weren't applicable for me that didn't fit my unique personality. And so I let go of therapy. And what I did was read everything that I could on any subject that I was struggling with, and then work through questions to figure out how it applied for my own life. Oh, that's fascinating. Literally just inhale everything on whatever that topic is. Yeah. And then seeing what fit, and then doing engaging in deep self-reflection to figure out what resonated with me. And I think that this is just so common with every single person, right? How many of us have been in relationships 
And like we go out for a night out with our friends and they're like, you need to break up with that person. Or, you know, like what kind of relationship is that? And we just hear it and we think, yeah, they're totally right. And then we make this decision that is actually not right for us. Right. How many times I know that for me, because my husband and I are so different. I heard that from so many people. I don't know if he's the right person for you. And how's he different? He's um, he's much more well james yeah james he shout out to james hey james (laughs) he's a white american guy from new jersey boston based so like several generations in the united states um very much more intellect driven rather than feeling driven not as sentimental as i am a lot less spiritual than i am um so all of that that mean less spiritual so when I have these like revelations or interactions with God, I'll tell him, but because he grew up like high, high culture, cerebral cognitive, Episcopalian, you know, didn't really grow up with prayer meetings and memorizing (laughs) the Bible. And he's like, that stuff's crazy. (laughs) Praying to God. Yeah. He knows it now because he's understood my language but it was difficult to connect with him at that spiritual level in the beginning, I would say. And so all of that, in addition to all of our cultural differences, which made the relationship a little bit tumultuous for the first few years. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. But he's now finishing like a... A PhD. He in, just finished. In? Theology. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Okay, so... So we go about religion different ways. Yeah, so he found some sort of groove, apparently. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. Okay, right. so you start to... So you talk with all these different people. Yeah. All these different people come to you because they want guidance, et cetera. And after a while, you're like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, I assume you're probably telling... Oh, wow, I did... I told these nine people the same thing. Uh-huh. I probably should write this down. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and I'm also um, demystifying the the uplifting of experts and gurus that we want to spend tons of money to, who we think have all the answers for us. But ultimately, what you're supposed to do is yes. already inside of you. Yes, absolutely. If you would, but claim that voice, like learn to tune in. Yes. To that voice of truth constantly present and constantly guiding you yes oh i just did this podcast this broadcast yesterday about uh these israelites want a king yes just give us a king Mm -hmm. and this samuel who is gandalf meets leonard cohen right is like yeah but if you get a king right king's gonna take your kids the king's gonna draft your daughters the king's gonna you'll end up enslaved and then you trace it back, and you're like, oh, these people had this unique destiny mm-hmm. to not need a king, mm-hmm. to, to listen, yeah. intuition, divine guidance. Right. Uh, and their whole structure was to be based on, well, what happened? You were slaves, and you were liberated. Well, then just extend that to others. Yeah. That's your constitution. That's right. And they're like, no, nah, we'd rather have a king. That's right. Give us an expert. Yes. Rather than the, the messier more awkward finding it ourselves. Yeah. It's a lot harder. Yeah. It's just easier. Can you just please tell me what to do? Right. Rob, you're the expert. Just tell me and what to do. And all the great steps into growth and maturity are always when you step 
into the truth that's, that's right. already present within you. That's right. And that's actually a huge shift in my own theology, too, because yes. I did grow up with an extrinsic God who was outside of me. And so holiness was something I had to acquire. Goodness was something that I had yes. to be. <laughs> right, right, right. That I had to right. strive for. Right. And so the transition from that extrinsic God to an intrinsic God who always lived inside of me. Yes, my worth is already intrinsic. There's nothing I can do to, to be more loved. That um, that's a, the great leap. Yes, that was the great leap that accompanied yep. this kind of healing mythology. Oh, so true. I, I the number of people who the the dominant thing was original sin. Yes. So that which is deepest within you is bad. Right. Well, then no wonder people are completely disconnected for their hopes, dreams. Yes. Uh, uh, the whole full spectrum of human experience are cut off from. Because right. obviously everything that's the deepest within me is all off. That's Instead right. of, no, we're going to go another layer below the offness to, to there's some onness or some goodness mm-hmm. that's actually the bedrock layer. Right. And spending all of their lives trying to prove their worth. Yes. Trying to get ahead. Um, trying to gain success and approval from others and feeling like they're making the wrong decisions or not good enough. Oh, exhausting. It is. Absolutely exhausting. So you so these workbooks are about this. Yes, exactly. How many of them are there? So there's th- there's four and the last one I'm still working on. But there's going to be more after the last one. I hope so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cuz I think I think um I think what you're talking about I think a lot of Robcast a lot of my Robcast peeps yeah. would find this incredibly helpful. Awesome. Um okay. Trying to think of other questions. Okay, so what's an average? You have people who want to meet with you. What do most people that you meet that meet with you? What do they mostly want to talk about? Are there like three themes? Are there four truths that are like across the board? You know what I mean? What do you on a given? If we were to follow you around for a week, yeah, and see all these people who come to you for guidance, right? What would we after a while if we had to put things in groups or categories or sort it out? How would we? What would we see? I would say. One of the big, big difficulties among people that that they constantly want to meet with me for are relational mm-hmm. fractures between spouses, children, friends. So there's a there's a a conflict that they don't know how to resolve. And can you help me, please, figure this out? Which makes complete sense, right? So happiness studies right now are really trendy. And while all the findings are different in terms of what constitutes human happiness, there's one factor that never, ever changes, is that humans are happiest when we're embedded into communities of love and support. And so the opposite would also make sense in that when we're in broken relationships with the people closest to us, that it causes the most pain. Um, And so that is a continuing theme in the work that I do one-on-one oh, with, interesting. with people. Everybody wants healing in the like tight relationships around mm-hmm. them. What else? Yeah. Grief, losing a loved one. Oh, I've seen this over and over again. Yeah. Grief sometimes from years ago that never got expressed. Yes. Grief. And, and then also like from losing a loved one. down in there. Yeah. yeah. And not knowing how to process that and mm-hmm. wanting to push it aside um, and needing community to to express their grief and help them work through it. 
do you get when you've heard a day of this do you get do you have are you able to set it down and go home and you're fine or do you carry it around with you so i used to carry it around with me and then i found another way that's actually really similar to what you shared at your joy talk i was there in san diego oh there you go yeah about it not being a barrier but it being a part of and the way to yes enjoying your current life and everything that you have through gratitude and presence and knowing the fragility of human the human condition yes yes we're all gonna die we should probably enjoy today yeah yeah (laughs) and it's an honor to to be a human and know that we will love and form attachments and what that entails is that we'll lose those loved ones too. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. Yeah. There is no other setup. Right. Than this. Yeah. Um, do you do you feel a weight leading your people? Does it feel like a burden? Does it feel like a joy? Does it feel like a like an adventure? Does it feel like an art project? How does it what does it feel like? Right. Such a great question. So I, I had a you have switch like an image on this. or a metaphor that is sort of the dominant way you think about it. Yeah, I had I had a I had a recent switch, and I think this was one of the reasons why I saw ministry and my calling as a burden for so long. Mm-hmm. So before, when I saw an extrinsic God and life was a test for approval, mm-hmm. that translated into my job as I need to do the best that I can do and save these people, because that is the task that will get me the gold stars in my performance review in heaven and the (laughs) switch to Mm -hmm. know your worth is already intrinsic and infinite and non-negotiable and your calling is not a test. It's now a gift. It gave me a completely different orientation to my work in that I'm not doing this because I have to be somebody's savior because we all already yeah. have a savior. <laughs> yes, yes. And I would be terrible at it anyway. And I would be terrible <laughs> at it. And so if I die, God, and the church is going to be fine if I were gone tomorrow. It really is because God is so much bigger than me. And so now I get to do my work out of pure joy and giving out of the gifts that I have received because that's when I'm happiest, when I'm living in alignment with the talents that God has given to me. Oh. Yes. That was the summer of 2008 for me. Yeah. I can like pinpoint a three month window. The when transition everything from burden. Absolutely. Everything absolutely changed night and day, just black and white yeah. change. And it was, yeah. uh, I, it was this exposure that I didn't even know was there of, oh, your job is to get these people from this place to this place, mm-hmm. like A to B mm-hmm. or point, uh, D to E, like your your job is to get them to a different, and uh, something is like, anybody I meet who's trying to get me to move to some new place, I don't want to be around that person. Yeah. Th- th- get away from me. Yeah. Anybody who knocks on my door and is trying to convert me to something, get out right. of my face. Right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. um, And I realized that I could endlessly swap through um, getting people more creative, global, urban, connected, relational, dangerous, adventure, whatever the thing is I was 
as a, you know what I mean? Like I always, there was always a new goal. Mm -hmm. I just need to get these people to whatever. Um, that's a very, very crude way of saying it. But when that all completely fell apart, like just a smoldering heap of pieces. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh my word. All I can do is give them the biggest, widest, most joyous gift I can give. Yes. I have absolutely no power or control over getting people to do something. No. All I can do is be like, here, does this help? Yeah. And it was the most freeing. I'm still high on the fumes of that. That's exactly. Right. I've never heard somebody else say it like you did. Yeah. The the most liberating thing I heard I felt God say to me is why do you think I need you? Right. Like, right, right, right do you right, think right, like right, I don't need right, you? Right, right, right. I'm I'm letting right. you do this because it makes you happy. Yeah, right, right. Right? Yeah. So get off your high horse and think that you can <laughs> save this world. Well, and first of all, these people don't need to be saved anyway because I've already saved them. Right. So your task is simply to enjoy this life that I've given you as a gift. Yes. And live out the your passions. Because this spiritual leadership thing, otherwise, it, there's a heaviness. Yes. This person who's like actually thinks they're here to like, this person's miserable to be. Generally, their personal lives are a wreck anyway, which mm -hmm. I kept noticing. But this, it's a very subtle, I mean, it's, it's where all cults come from. Yes. <laughs> it, so it's the early seeds of cult leaders, but it makes people miserable and it's like a, it's a weight that um, I I develop I began with this mantra of blessed is the one who's in on the joke. Uh huh. Like this <laughs> this premise is absurd. Yes. I even yes to this day even now you and I are talking it's absurd. Yes, it is. Um, I'm gonna say some stuff or people are gonna come to you and sit with you in a room somewhere in a building in San Diego and they're gonna bring their deepest darkest everything and they're gonna be with you and you're gonna witness to it and maybe offer some. All these premises are completely absurd. That's right. And when you can embrace them, that's right. That's actually where the divine is found. Mm -hmm. This whole thing, everybody showed up at different times in the vineyard and they all got paid the same that's amount. That's right. Are you with me? Yes. <laughs> I feel like absurd. Jesus is literally tapping the mic, going, Is this on? Because <laughs> I'm trying to talk to you about how absurd this whole thing is. And if you can like get that, now you might actually be able to help somebody. Now we can actually enjoy ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That I haven't heard somebody put it the way you put it, but you're so true. And it is the intrinsic to extrinsic. That's and right. you think about the premise, like some of those older ideas about the ultimate nature of the universe. Like I'll die and somebody will be like, look what you could have done. Or mm -hmm. what? why didn't you? those sort of heavy handed. And you go, if I'm going to die and that's turns out that was the setup. Mm-hmm. Then I got way bigger problems. Yeah, than absolutely. The, then that's just that's just ridiculous at so many levels. Yeah, and I and I had to, I I mean I had to come to this truth. Otherwise, I would have had to leave the ministry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, because the, particularly because I'm a young person, serving a mainline denomination, a mainline aging denomination. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of expectations right now for younger ministers to save the church oh because you said like post-world war ii that yeah. it, it, it had its heyday yes so there are these lingering expectations or energies that you they see i assume they see you and are like yeah she's, she's gonna to she's save gonna the save the church yeah so i'm the youngest senior minister 
by two decades in this church that I'm serving in San Diego. They took a risk on me. And it wasn't, I mean, they, they must it was, love you. I, I mean, there's, of course, right. There's a little bit of that, but then also there's a little bit of, well, maybe she will bring the church back to its heyday, which is a lot of pressure. It's like backwards me. energy. Yeah. And of course my ego would love to do that for them, to take them back to their, you know, yeah. to their glory days. Um, but I just can't, I can't change the religious tide at the moment. I can't change the yeah. different trends. You know, the, the spiritual yeah. but not religious population is yeah. growing. Yeah. The, the world has changed. Yeah, exactly. We know more. Quantum physics. That's right. You name That's it. That's right, yeah. So uh, fewer and fewer millennials and Gen X folks are going to church. I mean, the, the patterning is all very different, the religious patterning. And it's all bigger than me. And I can't make this institution survive as much as we love this institution, as much as it has benefited us it's in some ways you're like a f- you're like helping them have a funeral for the stuff that's died like a bunch of these things right. have actually died right and it's okay because yeah. there's all this other life on the other side right i mean our 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 church is 10 actually is healthy or in, in in terms of its yeah. population although it has declined over the years it is larger compared with other mainline churches. But the way that I see it isn't, so my, some of my colleagues are in churches where they're p- basically a chaplain. They're, they're, they're chaplaining oh, the church to it. death. Yeah. Uh, my congregation is different in that it is pretty vibrant and well attended. Yes. Uh, but I see it differently in that my job isn't to make this church as wealthy and as large as possible. And that was never the task of any minister of a church. Yeah. Right. But to build a community of love and support and we remind ourselves every week who we are and whose we are and the story of yeah. our identities. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank yeah, you. And by funeral, I just meant a bunch of these ideas had their time. They did. And we just let them let yes. them die because there's all these better new ideas. Yes. So if you can let go of that and we can just have a proper funeral, right. there's going to be a birth over here. Yes. And Let's that's what you're doing. Let's not miss that. Let's not miss that because that's we're just doing. so obsessed with resuscitating something from the past. Exactly. You're really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, we need more Reverend Lydia's. Thank you. <laughs> How can people find you to wrap this up? Yes. So I am a minister at St. Mark's United Methodist Church in San Diego. Lydia Sohn. Lydia Sohn. S-O-H-N. That's right. Yep. And I also blog at www.revlydialydia.com. And I send out weekly enough. essays. And oh, produce, do really? I do. Fantastic. I send out um, weekly posts, and I'm working on work and the workbooks. And, yes, and that can also be found on my website. Okay. And did you just say books? And I'm working on a book. Oh, well, but you, you know that takes a while. So I so I've heard. Yeah, that won't be out for another <laughs> couple of years. So I've heard. Oh, I'm so glad you came by the back house. I'm so glad we met. Thank you. The yeah, honor is ins- all mine. Well, no, you're very inspiring. Thank you. You're very inspiring. Yeah, people are going to love you. Uh, my goal is to crash your site. Thanks. <laughs> Grace and peace, everyone. Bye.